This sermon is titled 2nd Thessalonians part 1. Be enriched as you listen. If you brought your Bibles, please turn with me to 2nd Thessalonians. 2nd Thessalonians. We're going to try to cover this book uh, quickly this morning. We completed our study in 1st Thessalonians last week, five chapters. So, Paul was in Corinth. He wrote this letter. He sent it off to the believers at Thessalonica. If the team that carried this letter took a sea route, uh, they may have reached there in five days. If they took the land route, probably 12 days. But the letter reached the church in Thessalonica, the believers there. So the big question is, why did Paul have to write another letter? And uh, he wrote this letter almost immediately, within a few weeks, we could estimate, and he sent another letter to them. The reason that we could infer as we look at this letter is that there were two main problems that he heard about. So people carried the letter there, and then they came back saying, Paul, uh, there's some, still some problems going on there in Thessalonica. And one had to do with the... Both, in fact, had to do with the fact of the teaching that Paul had brought to them uh, about the return of Jesus Christ. And so some people had gone to the Thessalonians and in the name of Paul uh, informed these people that Christ had already come. You missed the rapture and you're now in the tribulation. And so these, of course, these believers were pretty shaken Paul taught us we're going to be gone. We're not going to be here. And look, we are here in the tribulation. And so Paul had to address that. And we will see that in chapter 2. And also, because or in, in view of the fact that Jesus is going to return, some believers took this idea or the notion that, well, Jesus is coming back, so why do you need to work? Sit back, relax, enjoy the service. (laughs) <laughs> they took that position. <laughs> no, there's no need to work. Jesus is coming. And so Paul had to address them and say, hey, Jesus is coming, but you still need to live responsibly until he comes. So these were the two main reasons. So very quickly, he had to sit down and pen this letter, the second letter, second Thess- to Thessalonians. It's a short letter, just three simple chapters, but he's addressing these two matters, and then we will see a couple of other things that we will highlight. So let's pick up 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, read from verse 1 onwards. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. So Paul is telling these Thessalonians, hey, we are boasting about you. You know, we're talking to others about you, about your faith, about your patience, about your endurance. But I want to highlight that he tells them, you know, we're so happy because your faith grows exceedingly and your love abounds. So faith must keep growing, love must keep abounding. We must never reach a place where we say, help, it's time for me to just coast. Time for me just to plateau off in my faith and in my love. No. Keep on growing. Keep on increasing. So don't plateau. Don't reach a place where you say, well, I think I've done enough with my faith. And I've done enough with loving people. No. Your faith must abound or keep growing. And your love must keep abounding, keep increasing. And we all understand that the best way for us to grow in something is to keep using it, keep practicing it. Because the more we do it, the stronger we become. 
So keep exercising your faith in God. It's wonderful whatever you've, you know, whatever level you've reached, keep exercising your faith, keep growing. It's wonderful whatever place of love you're in, keep doing it more so that you can keep abounding in love. Verse 5. Which is manifest, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. I want to point out something and maybe present this to you for you to look at very closely when you have some time. To compare the description of the coming of the Lord that Paul presented in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 14 to 18, compare that with what we just read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. Both are talking about the coming of the Lord, but they're very distinctly different. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14 to 18, he's talking about the Lord coming with the, the sound of an archangel, with the trumpet of God's sounds, and he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up, and we will meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we forever be with the Lord. That's the description. But the description given here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10 is, He comes with flaming fire, with, the, with His angels, to execute vengeance on them who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming to execute judgment in that day. He's coming in flaming fire. Do you see the distinction? There are two different descriptions. And therefore, as we read through, and we will see this in chapter 2, we refer to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as the secret coming of the Lord, meaning he's coming to take his saints away. We refer to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 7 through 10 as the second coming. Because here he says he will be revealed in flaming fire. Means now he, everyone's going to see him. Not so with what was described earlier in 1 Thessalonians 4. Here he's coming to execute judgment. This is the second coming. Which parallels what we read in Revelation 19 at the end of the seven years of tribulation. Are you with me? Some of you are saying yes. <laughs> okay. So these are two very distinct descriptions of the coming of the Lord. The one is what we would refer to as a secret coming. The second one is the second coming, which, which, which we position at the end of this tribulation as described in Revelation 19. I encourage you to study this very carefully. Let's read on, please. Verses 11 and 12. Therefore, we also pray for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our Lord and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying we also are praying for you. We are praying for you. So you and I can you know, imitate these prayer points as we pray for other believers. He said, what do we pray for you? We are praying that, uh, that God would fulfill all his good pleasure. All the good things that God wants to do may be done in you. We are praying that uh, God will complete your work of faith with his power. So you are working with your work of faith. May the power of God come in and fulfill, you know, uh, bring to completion, bring to fruition, bring to much success the work that you are doing by faith. We are praying that 
That, what does he say there? We are, we are praying for you that the Lord will be glorified in the name of our Jesus may be glorified. Lord, be glorified in their lives. And may they also be honored in you. So these are things that we can pray for one another. Let's go to chapter 2, please. So now Paul begins to address the first of the two concerns. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Now, brethren... Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. Now look at those words carefully. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. That is very much like what he described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 14 to 18. The Lord Himself will descend and we will be gathered together to Him. So he's saying, I want to talk to you about the that. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together him, we ask you, verse 2, not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Ah, so this is the problem. Some people have come and said, the day of Christ has come. You missed the rapture. Well, read over. And they put Paul's name in it. Yeah. Paul said. So they have something by the spirit. The prophecy. By word. By letter. They're, they're bringing this man. You've missed the rapture. And they put Paul's name on it. Yeah. So, so don't be shaken. Don't be troubled. By this kind of information. That may have come to you. And somebody has purposely put our name on it. So don't be shaken by that. Then he goes on to say this. He says, verse 3. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling of it comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now the focus is shifted to that day. What day? He's spoken of that in chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. That day, the day when the Lord will be revealed in flaming fire for judgment. He says, that day will not come. Unless there is first a falling away, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Which means... Paul had spoken about these things to the believers in Thessalonica when he was there for about three or four weeks. He had spoken about these things. He had spoken to them of the man of sin, the son of perdition, or the son of destruction, who is going to come and he is going to speak blasphemous things against God. And he is going to set himself in the temple of God to be worshipped. Now, what is Paul talking about? He's talking about what Daniel had spoken of in the book of Daniel. So the book of Daniel is a fascinating book, an amazing book, a shocking book. Because it is history of a thousands of, you know, of, 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 of two millennia written in at once. Daniel lived in the time of the Babylonian Empire and he spoke of successive world empires ahead of time. He even spoke about the times in which we are living right now and he spoke of things to come. Daniel living in the time of the Babylonian Empire spoke and said, after the Babylonians will come the Medes and the Persians. And after that will come the Greek Empire. In Daniel chapter 8, you'll be amazed to see that Daniel even spoke about the first leader of the Greek Empire. And you and I know who it was, Alexander the Great. He spoke and foretold that Alexander the Great will increase in strength greatly, quickly, but he will be cut out. And then his empire will be divided into four parts. And which actually happened after Alexander the Great died. Four of his generals took over four of his four portions of his empire. And Daniel foretold that out of one of these four will rise up a little horn, who is referred to as the son, the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition or destruction, the Antichrist will come. 
So Daniel foretold these things. Daniel foretold that after the Greek empire would come an empire that would be much stronger than any of the previous empires, which we know it was the Roman empire, which is described as the the feet of uh, the legs of iron in Daniel chapter 2 are referred to as the beast with 10 horns in Daniel chapter 8. He foretold that. And he said after this Roman empire would come an empire, would come a time when there would be iron mixed with clay. Iron representing the people from the Roman empire, the former Roman empire mixed with clay representing people of all races. And that's exactly what we're seeing happen today in Europe. More specifically in the European Union. We find a loosely held grouping of nations. Some of them belonging to the former Roman Empire. Some of them are, and they're all mixed with races from all over the earth. Daniel spoke about it in Daniel chapter 2. And he said that from this would emerge ten leaders. Represented by the ten toes in Daniel chapter 2. Or the ten horns in Daniel chapter 8. And he said that. From one of these four regions that belong to the former Greek empire, where the little horn comes, he would be propped up by three of these leaders who belonged to this region. Out of the ten, three out of the ten. So we're looking very carefully now at what's happening in Europe. Who are the ten leaders who are emerging? And who is this little horn that would come on the scene? Who would then be propped up and be brought into power and prominence by three of these leaders, or three out of the ten of these leaders. And this man would come into power as a man of peace. Daniel mentioned it. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. He'll come as a man of peace and he will sign a seven-year peace treaty, bringing peace to the Middle East. And we know how tense, what a region, tension-filled region the Middle East is. Just two days back, I would say yesterday for us, tension broke out again in the Middle East. But the Palestinians, you know, just bringing a surprise attack on Israel from the Gaza Strip. Now Israel is going to, the prime minister said, we are at war. We are going to retaliate in no small means. And so that tension has been there for quite some time. And that, that center of that conflict is the Temple Mount, which we know when you go back in time, Solomon built his temple there on Mount Moriah, just outside the city of Jerusalem. And that temple was destroyed. It was rebuilt when Nehemiah and Ezra, they came. It was rebuilt. It was again destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. And that temple mount, in its place, are two uh, structures that belong to Islam right now. There is Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock standing on the temple mount. But here, Paul, quoting what Daniel said, he said, this man... This lawless one, this man of sin, the son of destruction, will sit in the temple of God. Which means that the temple structure will be back. Are you with me? You understanding? Was it too fast? So in this structure, this temple of God. So somehow, in all the conflict that we're seeing, Daniel has already foretold what is going to happen. And we can see... With, with, with you know, great curiosity, what is happening in the Middle East? What the Bible is saying? And we can say, look, this is what will happen. But this man of sin will come into prominence by being this man who will be able to broker peace in the Middle East. No world leader has ever been able to do this till now. But this man of sin will be able to do it. He will sign a treaty of peace for seven years. The temple will be established. But in the middle of the seven years, he will set himself up as God, demanding worship. And that's what Paul is referring to. So Paul had explained to these believers in Thessalonica in detail from the book of Daniel, everything that's going to lead up to the second coming. The Lord Jesus, when he preached in Matthew 24, referred to this man of desolation in Daniel Matthew 24, 15. The apostle John, when he wrote the book of Revelation, described that the, in Revelation 11, that this temple will be established. And he described the Antichrist and what he would do in Revelation 13 and 14 and on. So it's all there for us in scripture. Are you with me? So Paul is referring to that. He says, I told you all these things. So before that day, 
So between us being gathered to meet the Lord in the air, and before that day, the seven years of tribulation, what will happen? This lawless one will be revealed, this man of sin, the son of perdition, and he will do all these things. Continuing now, verses 6 to 7. And you know, and now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his time. What's holding this Antichrist, this man of sin, from being revealed? What's holding him back? He says, verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now I have to admit that, I have to admit that there's been so much debate on these three verses, 6, 7, and 8, about what, when Paul says in verse 6, now what is restraining? What is that one thing that's holding this man of sin, the Antichrist, from being revealed? What's holding it back? There's been a lot of debates, and Bible scholars have said so many things. And, you know, everyone thinks they're right, so I also think I'm right. <laughs> I'll tell you what I firmly believe. Uh, in a very, in a nutshell, but if you really want to understand it in depth, you know, we could do that. We, we do this in Bible college, but I'll tell you in a short, short essence what, what I believe. The first thing, notice in verse 6, he says, what is restraining? There is no pronoun there. It's not referring to a he, but it's a what is restraining. The second thing I want to mention very quickly, verse 7. When he uses, when, verse 7 in the New King James and the King James, there is this pronoun used, he who now restrains, when he is taken out of the way. What I want you to know is that the pronoun is not there in the Greek. In the Greek text, the he is not there, right? So it was introduced there by the translators. They thought, let's be consistent. Let's put it in. It's there, but it's not there in the Greek. So verse 7 should correctly read, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only what withholds now will do so until it be brought out of the way. Because when you read it with a pronoun he, then we are immediately thinking about a person. But when you read it correctly as it's in the Greek, without the pronoun, it could be something else. When what is restraining, what withholds now, will do so until it be brought out of the way, then this man of sin will be revealed. So what could it be? And of course, most Bible scholars will zero in on and say, well, this has to be either the Holy Spirit or the church. One of the two. Either the Holy Spirit or the church. And I'm firmly convinced he's talking about the church, not the person of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we see it very clearly. First of all, like I said, the he pronoun is not in the Greek, so which opens up the fact that it doesn't have to be he. It could be a what? The church. And Paul has set the context. First Thessalonians chapter 4, the church will be taken out of the way. And so many other scriptures that you could study where the Lord has promised to keep the church away from the day of wrath, from the time of Jacob's trouble, from that seven years of tribulation. So many other scriptures we can talk about. Chapter 5 is also something Paul referred to earlier. So the church is taken out of the way and then the man of sin is revealed. The other thing we can also present is that throughout the tribulation, the seven years of tribulation, the Holy Spirit is at work on the earth because people are going to be saved during the tribulation. There are 144,000 Jews who are going to be sealed with the, Holy, with the, with the mark of God, which, which is the Holy Spirit. There are going to be two witnesses who are going to be doing mighty signs and wonders, and they can only do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. So therefore... Knowing that the Holy Spirit is going to be very at work very much in the seven, in, during the tribulation, what is it that could be, is that is restraining now, which has to be taken out of the way so that the man of sin will be revealed? My safe conclusion is it is the church. Are you with me? If you disagree with me, we'll shake hands, be good friends. Amen. Verses 9 through 12. 
Let's see, what does this lawless one do? Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of truth, love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So this lawless one, he's going to manifest powers, lying signs and wonders. So you see, there is lying signs and wonders done by the powers of darkness. So this Antichrist, empowered by Satan, is going to be doing these things, lying signs and wonders. And he's going to deceive people. He's going to deceive people. That's going to be his way of captivating hearts and minds all over the world. And, and, and the book of Revelation describes this. Revelation 13 talks about two things. He's going to be empowered by the false prophet. And he's going to set in place a world religious system. By which the people will be made to worship the beast. He's going to set up a world economic system. By which you cannot buy or sell unless you have the mark of the beast. So he's going to really control people through deception. But the vehicle of his deceptions are going to be the world economic system and a world religious system. He's going to control people throughout the world. And it is so possible in the times in which we live. One idea, one ideology you know, sprouting in some part of the world can capture the minds of people all over the world. Like that. We are living in a time when Revelation 13 can literally be fulfilled before our eyes. But what we do know is in Revelation 17, that world religious system is going to collapse. In Revelation 18, that world economic system, John writes, in one hour, the global economic system set up by this man of power, this lawless one, is going to collapse. John says, in people all over the world, the merchants all over the world, they're going to see their wealth evaporate in one hour. It's going to be gone. Revelation 18. And we're living in a time when the economic, the, the economy of nations are so intertwined that something happens in one part of the world, it has global impact. Wealth just evaporates, just disappears. So we are living in a time when Revelation 13 and 17 and 18, all these things in the book of Revelation can literally be fulfilled before our very eyes. 30 years ago, we would not imagine something, things like this could be possible. But here, the time is here. Verses 13 and 14. So Paul commands these believers. He says, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, we are thanking God for you, brethren. You know, God has called you, he's chosen you, he's saved you. I want to just make very briefly, very com a comment here on what Paul says. God, verse 13, God from the beginning chose you, for salvation through sanctification. God, from the beginning, chose you for salvation. So this opens up another big area where people debate about a lot in the Christian church. And I just want to make a few comments on it. So, God, from the beginning, chose you for salvation. So if God chose you, then did you have any choice in it? Or are you saved just because God said, duck, 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 duck. <laughs> I chose you. You're saved. You'll be sanctified. Or did you have a choice in it? So here's this big debate about the predestination of God and the free moral agency of man. Did God just predestine everything and that you're saved because God from the beginning chose you? Or are you saved because you said yes to the gospel 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. And a follow-up question to that is, if God chose you to be saved, that means you're saved forever. You can live like the devil and still make it to heaven. Hallelujah. Or, does the Bible tell us that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Why, why does there have to be fear and trembling if you're already chosen for heaven? Relax, sit back, do what you want, you'll still be there. So why do we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? How do we reconcile these things? And there are a lot more scriptures. Uh, that's, you know, that's something we will teach in the Bible college, but I want to just summarize it in a very brief statement. So a few things, keep in mind. The predestination of God has to do with the program of God, not with the individual choice of, not with the choice of every individual. The predestination of God is not a predetermination of individual choice. God did not predetermine your choice. But he predestined that everybody who does say yes to him will become part of this program, which is really sanctified by the Holy Spirit and transformed and made to the image of Jesus Christ. So the predestination has to do with the program. You still have free moral agency to say yes to his call. God... God's predestination must be understood in terms of foreknowledge, not predetermination, but in foreknowledge. He knew before time who will say yes and who will say no. He didn't predetermine your choice. That choice is always yours. But he knew ahead of time that you will say yes and somebody else will say no. That's the foreknowledge of God. Are you understanding it? Right? So God didn't decide your choice that is still yours. You are a free moral being. But God predestined that everybody who says yes, they will become part of the chosen. And the chosen have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That's where the predestination comes. Not in determining your choice, but offering you the choice. And in knowing that you will say yes, and we will say yes. And for all of us who say yes, we become part of the chosen. And the chosen have been predestined to become like Jesus. Very simple. So it recognizes the sovereignty of God. It recognizes the predestination of God. And it also recognizes the free moral agency of man. Do you understand it? So that leads us to the next question, which I will answer very briefly. Is it possible for somebody to lose their salvation? I believe it's very clear in Scripture that you can lose your salvation. So how can you say that? Because the gift is eternal, but what you do with the gift is up to you. It doesn't change the nature of the gift. Salvation is eternal. The gift is eternal. But whether you keep it or you discard it is up to you. So you can receive it and discard it. The nature of the gift is eternal. But whether you keep it or not, it's up to you. That's why the Bible teaches us, he who endures to the end will be saved. Not who he who began, not who he, he who signed up will be saved, but he who stays till the end will be saved. It's a big difference. And we can give you tons of other scriptures to show you that, show us that, hey, it's possible for a believer having received that gift of salvation, to turn away from it and to walk away from it, as Hebrews chapter 6 says, to trample underfoot the Son of God a second time. Right? And there are a lot of other scriptures. So while we accept the fact that God from the beginning chose us for salvation, it does not do away with our free moral agency. We have a, a call to be committed to it. You can't say, I believe in Jesus and go live like the devil and think you'll show up in heaven. Doesn't work. There is grace, but there is also responsibility. Let's read on, please. If you disagree with me once again, we'll hug each other. We'll be friends. Let's read on. Verses 15 through 17. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our episode. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your heart and establish you in every good work, word and work. 
There's again so much here we can talk about, but I just want to highlight this part where Paul writes to them and says, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught. And as believers in in today's world, this is a struggle. And as a church, this is a struggle. How do we hold to the traditions of the teaching of the scriptures? And yet, how do we be relevant? How do we be relatable? How do we be, how how are we to be contemporary? And how are we to connect with a world that has moved on in terms of the way of life? Things have changed dramatically from the times of the Bible, when the scriptures were given, to the times in which we are living. We're 2,000 years apart. So much has changed. How we live life, the things are, things are so different. So how, so the, church, the struggle with the church that we are facing is how do we hold on to the traditions and still stay relevant? Now the danger is to swing to either extreme. In an attempt to be relevant and modern and contemporary and relatable, sometimes some churches may forget the traditions. So very relatable. But the traditions, the truth has been lost. Sometimes it could be on the other side where we are so entrenched in holding on to the traditions, we are no longer relatable. People can't connect. They're still speaking in a language nobody understands. You know what you're saying. And so the challenge for us as a church is, how do we hold on to the traditions and yet be relatable, connect with our modern world? How do we talk about the gospel the way the gospel was preached with signs, wonders, miracles, and the power of the Holy Spirit and living in sanctification, holiness, and in truth? How do we keep a grip on that and yet at the same time connect with a generation that's constantly changing? That's the challenge. But we must do it. Amen? We need to have the wisdom of God and the ability that God gives us to, be, to hold on to the truth that was handed to us and yet speak it in a way and minister it in a way that will touch the hearts of people today. Amen? Let's go to chapter 3. We'll finish this up. So now Paul addresses the second problem very quickly. We'll read it. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. So this is something we can pray for people who are ministering God's word, that the word of God may move powerfully through them, be glorified through them, and that they will be protected from wicked people. Verse 3. But the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you. Both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. So he says, you know, this is God. This is a confidence we have. God is faithful. He will establish you. He will guard you. And this is something we can pray for one another or people that you care about. God, I thank you. You keep them firm. You protect them. You guard them from the evil one. And now Paul addresses the main, the second main issue. Verse 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he's commanding the church. Can you imagine? I'm commanding all of you. Relax. Not me, Paul. (laughs) But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus. The command is coming in the name of the Lord. That means this is coming from the Lord. That you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Don't hang around such people. Withdraw. What's he saying? Verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge. 
but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Amen. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey the word in this episode, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Pretty strong words. Saying, look, so this is the second problem. Some people are just busy bodies. They're not working. Jesus is coming soon. So let's just relax. Not doing anything. And Paul says, hey, listen. He first points to his own example. And it's very interesting. Keep this in mind. At the time Paul was actually writing this epistle, he was in Corinth. And you can read this in Acts chapter 18, verses 1, 2, and 3. In Corinth, he, where he spent about a year and a half, 18 months, he teamed up with another couple, Aquila and Priscilla, who had come from Rome. They were Jewish believers who had come from Rome. He teamed up with them. They were tent makers. They made tents. And so he teamed up with them. And can you imagine? Paul had a business. Paul and co. Tent makers. <laughs> they were making tents. And they were, you know, obviously they sold it. They didn't give it away for free. They made tents, sold it, made money, took care of their own needs. And they were planting a church in Corinth. I want to ask you a question. Did Paul lose his calling and anointing as apostle because he was making tents? Did God say, Paul, from now on, you cannot be apostle, you're making tents? No. In fact, we can infer very clearly as you study the scriptures, when he was in Thessalonica, when he was in Corinth, when he was in Ephesus, he worked. Most likely, he made tents. And all these places... He did this. He took care of his own needs, the needs of his team members. But he was still an apostle. He was still writing the epistles. Now some people today have such a wrong notion. Oh, if you work, you lose your anointing. That means you're reading letters written by an unanointed apostle or a person. No. No, not at all. So Paul was working along with Aquila and Priscilla, making tents while he was establishing the church in Corinth and he was writing this epistle. So he could say, look, I am practicing what I'm preaching. I'm working with my own hands. And I want, you know, he's challenging the believers in Thessalonica. I want you to do the same thing. Are you listening? And he's telling them, I want you to work. I don't want anybody to be a busybody just going house to house. Work with your own hands. Eat your own food. Live responsibly. And he's also encouraging the believers. He says, verse 13, don't become weary in well-doing. So obviously, you know, uh, out of compassion, they saw these people who had needs. They were not working. So the others are trying to meet their needs. And so they're getting tired. When is this guy going to go get a job? You know, look at me. Don't go weary in well-doing. Take care of one another. But I want these people to live responsibly. And if they are not willing to live responsibly, then you'll be strict with them. Don't count them as an enemy, but be it, admonish him as a brother. So brother, you need to get a job. Are you listening? Now this is not to put anybody down. I don't know what's going on in all of your lives. I'm just saying what Paul is teaching us in the scriptures. Worship team, come before people leave. <laughs> well, this is serious, right? We've got to live responsibly. Then he closes with a benediction. May the 
Lord of peace himself, give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with all of you. Be with you all. Amen. So, 2 Thessalonians. Short episode addressing two main points. One is about the coming of our Lord. And second is about living responsibly until he comes. Chapter 1. Let your faith grow. Let your love abound. Keep growing in that. Don't hold back. We may have, you know, we may have challenges. But keep growing in your faith. Keep growing in your love. Chapter 2. About the coming of the Lord. There's a lot in that. But we could see that. There is, there is a secret coming and there is a second coming. And in between, there is this lawless one, the man of sin, the son of perdition who comes and does his thing. But the church will be taken out of the way. And we will not be here to go through that seven years. But the Bible has so much written in advance of things that will take place during that time. Chapter 3 is us, uh, Paul teaching us. As he leads into chapter 3, hold on to the traditions that have been given to us. Don't let it go. Stand firm in that. Hold on to what we've been taught as we live in a world that the times are changing, but we have to hold on to the truth. And chapter 3, live responsibly until Jesus comes. Work. Glorify Jesus. Live responsibly. Let's rise to our feet, please. How about the Lord has spoken to you this morning through his word, by his spirit. Let's take a few minutes to respond to God. Maybe some of us have been stirred to continue to stretch, continue to exercise your faith and love. Don't plateau off. Don't say, this is enough, I'm going to sit back. No, no, no. Keep Growing in your faith and keep increasing in your love. Keep growing. Maybe some of us need to, may have been awakened to the times in which we live. That the coming of the Lord is so near. The Bible is history written in advance for us. To warn us, to speak to us, to alert us of the times in which we live. And perhaps there is that sense of urgency that I would say finally has hit home. Finally, you're feeling that urgency. Finally, you're realizing that the Bible is real. The times in which we are living have already been written off. And I'm living in those times. There's that urgency being stirred up in you. You've got to make your life count for God. There's that urgency. I've got to live responsibly. I've got to do the things God wants me to do. Some of us, I want to also take some time to pray about our workplace. And, and, and this morning is not to condemn anybody, not to demean anybody, but to challenge all of us. Maybe you, you're here this morning, you say, I want to work, I don't have a job. We're going to pray. Believe that it is our Lord who gives us the power to get wealth. Deuteronomy 8, 18. It is the Lord. Remember the Lord your God. It is He who gives you the power to get wealth. That He may establish His covenant with you. Some of us may have a job, but it, must, it might be a very difficult job. You say, God, this is too much. I don't even like it. And I want you to remind you of, script, of what the Word of God says. In Isaiah 65, God says, My people will enjoy the work of their hands. We're going to pray for that. That there will be a transformation coming in your place of work. That 
in your work that God will enable you to enjoy or enjoy the fruit of your labor and enjoy the work of your hands. Some of us may be so blessed. Thank God for it. But live responsibly. How can you be a good steward of the good things God has given you? How can you be a good steward? How can you help somebody else? Or maybe you're past that working time and all of that is past for you and you're in a different season of life. Think about how you can still make your life count for God. Maybe you can share the wisdom that you have, the experiences you've had, the knowledge you've gained. Maybe you can pass it on to other people, enrich their lives. We're going to come back, pray for those things. Let's just worship God, please.
Father, we just thank you that you work miracles. You still work miracles. That you heal, that you deliver, that you intervene in our life situations. You are the God of miracles. And Father, even as we've heard from your word, we pray for those who who want to obey your words. They're waiting for an opportunity for their work. They want a job. So, Father, we pray according to your covenant, Lord. You said, remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you the power to make wealth, that he may establish his covenant with you. Father, I pray that for those who don't have a job or looking for an opportunity to make wealth, that you will orchestrate things for them and give them the power to make wealth according to your word. For those who need a change, Lord, you said my people will enjoy the work of their hands. You said my people will enjoy the fruit of their labor. And maybe they're in a situation that that's not happening. So God, we pray for them that change will come. That you will change things in their lives by your power. So they will, be, they, they will be in a place where they can enjoy what they do. And they can enjoy the fruits of their labor. Father, we pray for those who are walking in their goodness and their blessing, God. We pray you'll help us be good stewards. And just be a blessing. To others. Before we close, I just want to take a moment if, to give an opportunity for people to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. This is the most important thing. God from the beginning planned that He desires for all to be saved. For all to come to know the truth. And he made a provision for every person. By sending his son Jesus Christ. No matter what your background is. Jesus Christ came into this world. He died for you. On the cross. He bore your sins. He was buried. He rose up again. He's alive today. And the Bible says anyone who believes in him. Receives forgiveness of sins. They can become a children of God. They can become children of God. And they're given a place in heaven. That's what the Bible says. But the choice, the decision is yours. Nobody else can make that decision for you. The decision to believe and follow Jesus is something you personally must make. And if you've never made that decision, I want to lead us in a simple prayer. And if there be anyone here in the auditorium watching online, if you've never made that decision, your decision to believe in Jesus, to follow him, and you feel in your heart, I need to do this today. The time is too short. I need to do this today. Then I want you to pray this with me, please. If you have never done this before, just say this with me. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Forgive my sins. Make me a child of God. And help me to follow you. And you alone. The rest of my life. And help me to live. For your glory. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Anybody here you prayed this prayer with me. For the very first time in your life. We want to celebrate with you. We want to acknowledge that you did this today. So if you don't mind, could you just wave your hand at me? Anyone here in this auditorium, you prayed this prayer with me for the very first time. Can I see your hand, please? Anyone here? Just wave your hand at me. Anyone here? You did this for the very first time? Anyone? Nobody? Okay. I don't see any hands. 
if you did that prayer, if you did pray that prayer, our ushers will be holding, our greeters all around will be holding this pink bag. We call it the New Believers Bag. We want you to just go to them and say, hey, I prayed that prayer. Can I have this bag? We want to gift this, gift this bag to you. And they'll also have a card that says decision card. You can just please write your name and your phone number. Just hand it back to them so somebody can call you and tell you how to use the resources that are in this bag. So if you prayed that prayer with me for the first time today, please make sure you meet one of our ushers and get this bag from them before you leave. We're going to close. Just a reminder, next Sunday, what time service? Only one service at 8 o'clock. We cannot do the 10.30 service. Uh, if you cannot make it at 8 o'clock in person, of course, that will be live stream. So you could watch that on, on YouTube or whichever challenge you, channel you want. Let's close in prayer, please. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, our Heavenly Father, and the sweet fellowship of His Holy Spirit be with each of us always. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening. We trust this message was a blessing to you. For more free resources, including sermons, sermon notes, and books, please visit apcwo.org. For information on APC Bible College in Bangalore, visit apcbiblecollege.org. Do remember to download the All People's Church Bangalore app from the Apple or Google Play Store.